Hey, you may be seated. You know, you come into this building this morning, and the building's old, older, on the older side, and I love it. And you come in this morning, we have a lot of people sick. You know, we're what, maybe 60, 70 this morning max. <clears throat> I want you to know that if you come in with those, those eyes and say, what are we doing here, right? Like, what is this Christian thing all about? Mm. Old buildings, old pews, 70 people here maybe. We are part of something as we're walking in and as we're worshiping this morning. We are joining something that's over 2,000 years old. A global movement that has captured the hearts of almost 3 billion people. And so, yeah, we're small. We have an old building. But this morning as you're worshiping, you're joining with 2,000 years of people who have gone before us, untold number of people joining them in worship and joining in this movement that's global in its scope. And God, we woke up this morning, God is still on mission, right? Tenaciously accomplishing his purposes to bring an untold multitude of people from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, every people group into his fold and he won't stop until all is found and all is saved. And so let's not despise the day of small things. Let's have eyes that see that we're joining this morning in something much bigger than what we see with our eyes, our physical eyes. Let me pray for us as we begin to get back into the text and into the gospel of Matthew. Father, I just thank you for your word. Thank you that we set aside each week a time for teaching from your word. And Lord, as you've promised in Isaiah, I pray that this morning, despite frail flesh, that your word will go forth and accomplish its purpose and will not return void, but will in fact accomplish the purposes for which you've sent it out. So give us ears to hear, give us eyes that see, give us hearts that are soft and yielded. Spirit, move among us and shape us into people who look like and smell like Jesus. Mm. In his name we pray, amen. Well, we're in a sermon series in the Gospel of Matthew, and we're still in the Sermon on the Mount, which is chapters 5 through 7, and we're taking a turn, and we're actually into chapter 7 uh, of the Sermon on the Mount. So we're, we're around the bend now, uh, and we'll be wrapping up the Sermon on the Mount, Lord willing, over the next, over the next few weeks. Probably won't finish uh, before Easter, but just after Easter, Lord willing, we'll finish the Sermon on the Mount and then move on to, to other things. But we don't want to move too quickly because there's so much here in the sermon from our Lord Jesus. As we get into this text, before we read this text, I just want to say a couple of things that this text is for his people. 
The Sermon on the Mount is for those who claim to be following Jesus. This is, this is instruction. This is training for those who say, Jesus, I want to be your disciple. What does it mean to look like to follow you? What does it mean to look like to be pleasing to you? What does it mean to live out the salvation that you've started in me? What does that look like? And so Jesus is training his disciples and, and sitting with his disciples and, and giving us this instruction. So I just want to say that up front because this is not for those on the outside. This is not, this is not three steps on how you uh, do good so that you can please God so that he'll like you or save you or something. We don't do these things to get saved. We do these things because we are saved, okay? We don't do these things to get in. We do these things because we already are in. Does that make sense? If you're not in and you want to know how, how do I get in, how do I become a follower of Jesus? What does, what does, Jesus, what does Jesus want from me? What, does, what did Jesus, and, and why would I maybe follow him? Talk to me afterwards. Talk to me afterwards. But it's very quite simple and has something to do with a cross and the forgiveness of sins and faith. So let's read our text this morning. Matthew 7, 1 to 5. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why? Why do you see the speck, the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jesus says some hard things sometimes, and this is, this is one of those. But we like that Jesus shoots straight and doesn't beat around the bush. Sometimes we need a hard word. What are we going to do this morning? Well, I'm just going to walk us through these five short verses. This is kind of the rest of my time uh, with you. I'm just going to walk us through these five, five verses, step by step, and then make some applications at the end. Uh, very simple, really. <clears throat> so let's go ahead and take verse 1. Actually, let me reread it again. Steve, let me, let's go and put uh, one, for, one to five up there again. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck? that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own. Or how can you say to your brother or sister, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. All right, verse 1, judge not, judge not that you be not judged. Judge not, but what sort of judging is meant? We can use the word judge in different ways. How do we, how are some ways that we use the word judge 
today? How do you hear it say? What are some different ways we can use it? Right, don't, don't judge me, right? Don't, don't what? Don't look down on me. Don't disparage me. Don't compare me with yourself and consider yourself superior than me. So we can use it in, we can use it in that way. What? Somebody? Blaming somebody? Blaming somebody, right? Don't judge me. Don't blame me. I didn't do it. Use good judgment. Assess the situation with wisdom and, and discernment and take a course of action that's wise and right. Law, the legal, a legal court setting, right? Uh, judges should judge. That's their job description. What do we mean? What do we mean by that? We mean to determine or pronounce someone guilty or innocent. Uh, of breaking the law after a due process of deliberation and inquiry. Criticizing. Criticizing. Don't criticize me. Now, criticism can be fair or unfair. Do you mean in like an unfair way? Yeah. No, that's really good. And just like in English, we have these various nuances of meaning of the word to judge. Uh, Jesus' day the same way. And so we kind of have to decide and ask a few questions here. What kind, of, what kind of judging are we not to do in order that we might not be judged? What sort of judging incurs that judgment that we don't want, so we're not judged? I think the text explains it, and we'll see that in just a moment. Let's move on. So we'll get a definition, I think, in verses 3 and 4. So let's just hold on, hang tight. We're not exactly sure what type of judging here is in view, but we're going to get an answer here in just a couple of moments. Let's take a look at the second half of the verse, uh, verse 1 there, that you might not be judged, or literally you, in order that you might not be judged. It's the same, same word, but I think there might be perhaps a word play here. Note that the word is in, it's in, it's in the passive it's not an active verb. You might not be judged. But who's doing the judging here in the second half of this verse? Judge not, you disciples, judge not in order that you might not be judged. Who's going to be doing the second judging? The Lord. The Lord. This is all over in our Bibles. This is all over in the New Testament especially where the verb is in the passive tense, but it's the Lord that's meant. We call this the divine passive, the divine passive where God is meant, right? Even though he's not actively mentioned here. It's divine judgment that is in view. This is, of course, as it is throughout the gospel of Matthew, a reference to the final divine judgment of God in the last day of human history. Gospel of Matthew simply presupposes this last judgment. History is going somewhere. Um, our world's a mess. It's infected with sin and injustice. But God promises as the just king, as the righteous Lord, as the good God who hates injustice, that someday at the end of history, 
He will set the world to rights and sit as king and sit enthroned as judge and judge the world in justice. That's only bad news if you're an evil person. If you're a good person, you're fine with that. We'll talk about that. But everywhere in the New Testament, Gospel of Matthew, Romans, Ephesians, Hebrews, 1 Peter, the book of Revelation assumes, just simply presupposes that history is going to culminate in a final judgment of God. And how is it that people, anyone, is going to get through that final judgment safe and sound and pass through to the new creational world that God has in store for his people? God will raise the dead, all of us, and we will all, all of us, stand before his throne to give an account of our lives for what we have done in the body. That is what is mentioned here in the words, in order that you might not be judged. On that day, the perfect judge who sees everything and searches hearts and from whom nothing is hid will sit as king and judge and render justice. And this is the presupposition assumed here in our verse. But notice there is a, a hint of hope here already in our text. If we don't want to be judged by God on that great and terrible day, then we need to simply do what? The text says. Judge not. Try to Don't judge. Don't want to be judged on that day? Don't judge now. Again, we'll get to sort out what type of judging is in view here in just a moment. Why should I be, yeah, why should I be concerned about God's judgment on that last day? Why should I not judge others? I mean, let's take a look at what the text says. I mean, it just gives an answer immediately in verse 2. Verse 2 gives the reason for why we do not want to judge and thus be judged by God on the day of judgment. Let's take a look at verse 2 then, moving on. For with For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Notice that the verse begins with the word for or because. It gives us the, cues us in that we're about to get the reason for why we don't want to judge others. It is, of course, again, because God will judge us, you and me, on that great and future day. In the same way that we, you and I, have judged others during our time here on earth. We get to determine what type of judgment we'll face on that day, what kind of justice we'll experience on that last great and terrifying day of human history. We get to choose what sort of day that will be for ourselves. If we don't judge others, we won't be judged, period. We'll pass through final judgment safe and sound because why? 
because we feared God and believed Jesus' words and made the conscious choice not to judge others. We resolve to let God be judge and not take that role for ourselves as if we were God. We resolve to know that we, and we came to be aware that we are not God, and we know that we are creature, not creator. Okay, well, don't judge and we won't be judged. But okay, what sort of judging are we not to do here exactly anyways? It's a specific sort of judging we are to shun. And it's explained in our next two verses. We're obviously not telling those who serve as judges in court, don't do your job, right? That's not what we're saying. So what type of judging are we looking at? Let's take a look. It's explained to us in verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that's in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? So we get here an ex- specific, a specific example explaining what sort of judging is in view. Jesus here uses obvious hyperbole, maybe taken from the carpenter's shop. Uh, tradition has it that Jesus was, and there's a verse that possibly supports it, that Jesus, Joseph, was a carpenter. His, his, his adoptive father was a carpenter. Um, may mean carpentry, might be a little bit broader than that, but that's either, either nor there. Uh, Joseph was into construction of some sort. And so it's possible that Jesus is getting this from the carpenter shop and that he has seen planks and beams and logs And he's experienced sawdust, and he's gotten a speck in his eye before, growing up in the carpenter shop. Mm. The word here for log or beam or plank is a construction term. It is is beams or planks that are cut for building, building, building material. And so we actually here not have like a log that's in the forest, but we actually have construction material, a plank or a beam. Then there's been an accident, hasn't there? Because a beam, there's two guys, and there's a beam in one guy's eye, and there's a speck in another person's eye. Al, you're a, you're a carpenter. You're a woodworker. Ever got a speck of dust, sawdust in your eye before? <laughs> Quite often. Is it irritating? Is it irritating? Does it, does it destroy the eye? It, do, it destroys the eye? Is it, are you blinded? Temporarily. Temporarily. Okay, it's an irritant, right? Okay, but the eye's not destroyed. Think of a plank, think of a beam and a construction accident where a beam is literally sticking out of your face. All right? The face is caved in, Right? Is the eye irritated or is the eye destroyed? The eye is destroyed. The face is caved in. All right? 
So we got one guy who's doing this. Ah, duh. I could use some help here. And we got another guy who's walking around like this. Okay? Right? We got a guy, a a speck-eyed guy and a plank-eyed guy. Mm. The verse describes someone whose eye is destroyed with the result they can't view or appraise a situation correctly. They're spiritually blind to their own massive sins, which others can no doubt see. How do you miss a beam or a plank sticking out of someone's house? Someone's busted face, right? But then they have the audacity and the arrogance to think they're actually a spiritual person, maybe even a spiritual leader, and that they can help another person out with their smaller but real spiritual struggles. In fact, the word I hear, and when we start our Bible study tools uh, class next week, Sunday at 6, 6 p.m., little plug here. We'll be looking at this. This will be step five of our 10, 10 steps for, for handling a, a, any Bible text. Step five is doing word studies. Is there, are there any key words that are repeated in your text that bring to light a key emphasis in your text? And here we have the word I is repeated six times. The word I is repeated six times, and we have the verb, we have three different verbs here for seeing, uh, to see in verse 3, to notice or observe in verse 3b, and then to see clearly, another verb, different verb, in verse 5, to drive the point home. This person is spiritually blind because of their arrogance, their audacity, their presumption, their judgmental attitude their religiosity. They don't see, but they can't see. They're blind to their own devastating spiritual condition. They're a critical spirit hurting others even as they try to help. It's kind of like, I don't know, a a deacon of a church who has a 14-year-old son. And they go to the beach and, you know, the 14-year-old son notices a, a cute girl from his class that's also at the beach and she's wearing a cute swim, swimsuit and he notices, he notices her at the beach. And the dad, the deacon, you know, of the church chastises his son for that. All the while he's neck deep into porn in the dark in home. They don't see. They can't see their own devastating spiritual condition. Spiritually blind. The eye, the eye is destroyed. So this is the type of judging that we're talking about. To judge here means not to do what a court judge is supposed to do. To judge here means something like to point out another person's smaller sinful shortcomings all the while being blind to one's own devastating spiritual condition and situation. 
It's that criticizing. It's that disparagement. It's that judgmental tone. All the while being completely blind to your own desperate spiritual condition. All blind to the fact that we're all in the same boat. All of us. All of us equally sinners in need of divine grace and forgiveness. All of us needing to come to Jesus and experience his forgiveness and experience his cross, what he did for us at the cross for the forgiveness of our sins. There is no better than. We all need Jesus. So what does God think of, what does the text say? What does God think of this person, this judgmental, blind person, this log-eyed person? Verse 5. Verse 5, Matthew 7, verse 5, the next part of the text says this. There's three parts here. I'm just going to read the two first words. The answer is, you hypocrite. Mm. You hypocrite. That's the divine verdict on a person, this person. Devastating verdict, right? Two types of word studies, as I make another plug for the Bible study tools next week Sunday at 6 o'clock. We have our text, and we're looking for any repeated words in our text that might highlight any themes that we need to notice. But we also want to do word studies throughout the Gospel of Matthew and see if this maybe is a word that might show up elsewhere. And indeed it is. The word hypocrite occurs 12 other times in the Gospel of Matthew, almost always applied to the religious Pharisees. Those religious people who think they know God, but they don't know God. Matthew 22 alone, it's used seven times with reference to the Pharisees. They think they're in, but they're not in. They think they know God, but their heart is far from him, full of pride and arrogance. Think they know the rules. God's cops, right? God's cops, self-designated to go out and patrol sin and correct others. The word hypocrite was often used of an actor on a stage in theater during this time referred to somebody who played the part of another and wore a mask to carry out the role. So a hypocrite is a play, a play actor, somebody who plays pretend, somebody who is one person but plays another. Does that make sense? The religious leaders, the Pharisees, are pretending to be God's people and to know God. But they don't know God. They don't actually know God. They don't actually have a personal relationship with him. They actually haven't tasted their own sinful condition. And that hasn't actually humbled them to know that they actually need God. And they can't stand on pawn and over judgment on anyone because they themselves are sinners. That's a hypocrite in the Gospel of Matthew. 
They look very righteous on the outside, but inwardly they're all rot and death. Indeed, it is the hypocrites in Matthew 24, verse 21, that are in danger of the final judgment, according to Matthew's gospel. The most damning thing here is that the hypocrite in our verse has forgotten they are play-acting, right? They're blind guides. They believe they're right with God. They're God's cops on sin patrol, sin patrol, sin patrol, but they have utterly forgotten they're in desperate need of God's grace. Okay. So is that it? I mean, is that the end of the story for the hypocrite? There's those who are hypocrites and there's those that aren't and we shouldn't be like the hypocrites and be judgmental like them so that we're not judged. And that's it. They're just going to experience God's judgment? Is there no hope for someone like that? It's true. It's true. They are in grave danger. They're in a desperate situation. But verse 5 hasn't quite ended yet. You hypocrites is not quite the last word. So how does Jesus wrap it up? Let's take a look. Verse 5b. There's three parts here, you hypocrite. And then let's read the next section, or just the next part, next clause. First, take the log out of your own eye. Take the log, take the beam, take the plank out of your eye. Ironically, the hypocrite must come to see, the blind hypocrite must come to see, quotes intended, that they have a massive sin issue to which heretofore they have been oblivious to. They had no idea of their desperate situation, but something, somehow, miraculously, the hypocrite Here's the words. Take the log out of your own eye. And then become aware of the true reality of their plight. God, God has broken in somehow. Take the log, you hypocrite, out of your own eye. There's still time. There's still hope. This damning situation can be fixed. It's not too late. Ironically, it's highly likely that based upon the context of our passage, as we'll see in just a moment, that it's because, precisely because someone else in humility and love has gone to that person and corrected them and pointed out their sin. And God has been pleased to use that act of faith to bring this person to a realization that they're a sinner needing Jesus. Ironically, it's 
the humble person being used to speak truth to this proud person that might just save and rescue this person. Hypocrites commanded to pull out the beam, pull out and repent of their arrogance. Remove the sin that's nearly destroyed them. They must heed Jesus' command for there to be any hope. Text continues and isn't done. What happens if the hypocrite actually does listen to the person who's gone to them? Actually does remove the devastating sin from their life? Uh, recognizes their spiritual condition, that they're, they're arrogant and prideful, judgmental, that their heart is not right, and that they're in danger of the final judgment and of being condemned on the last day? What if they actually listen? What if they actually repent? What if they actually remove, by divine grace, the beam that's out of their own eye? Let's read the last part of our verse 5 for the answer. We've seen the remedy, pull out the log. Let's take a look at the result. Verse 5, see. Remove the log and then you will see clearly, you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. There's a miracle. There's a miracle that takes place. I didn't catch this until last night. I have read this text so many times. I've read it so many times. Yeah, yeah. Yep, got it. Don't be judgmental. Look at the miracle of the gospel that happens here. A eye, a spiritual eye, a spiritual a heart that was destroyed, destroyed, and couldn't see anything because of a beam, right? That caved in the face of this person, suddenly is able, because of repentance, to see clearly. Do you see that? An eye that was destroyed can see clearly again. Oh, don't sleep on me. Don't go to sleep on me. This is the miracle of the gospel right here. This is God breaking in and bringing healing to somebody who was lost and now is found, right? Whose eye was destroyed with sin and now can see clearly again, has been humbled, has been forgiven, has come to Jesus, has had a come to Jesus moment, right? has been saved by grace, and now not just is forgiven, but can actually be healed, see clearly, and in humility help out another person struggling with sin. Nobody is so far gone, not even a Pharisee, that Jesus can't save them. Nobody. Nobody. Nobody is so laden with 
their pride and their arrogance and their hypocrisy and their religiosity and their hardened heart that God can't sweep in, swoop in and heal, heal them. Some final thoughts, some conclusion. I think it's clear by now that the text isn't saying we can't do any sort of judging. In fact, there are other texts in the New Testament that use the exact, exact same word that commands us to do some judging. For example, how in the world at Moran Park are we to ever select elders if we don't assess character and spiritual maturity, right? Titus chapter 1, 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're to do assessing of character and spiritual maturity so that we can have and choose and select elders here at Moran Park. But if we can't judge anybody, how are we supposed to do that? Or in a few weeks, Brother, Brother Al's going to teach later in Matthew 7, verses 15 to 20. Matthew 7, which is just the same context as our text here, says that we are to assess and discern character and message of prophets, those who claim to be prophets, and to discern whether they're false prophets or true prophets. How do you go about discerning whether somebody's a false prophet or a true prophet in the church? You assess character, the text will say, and you assess their message. So there's a type of judging that we're supposed to do from a humble heart, knowing that we ourselves are sinners, knowing that we can self-deceive, knowing that we have to be careful. And there's a type of judging that we're to shun, right? Critical, disparagement, looking down on others in arrogance and criticizing, claiming and usurping the place of God when we are not God. So we need to know which is which. It's too easy to say something to the effect of when there's a difficult situation that needs a lot of wisdom and care and discernment an appraisal to say, don't look at me, I can't judge. We don't want to use this text as an excuse to not do that hard work. Number two, and finally, I think, this text is easily in our minds and in our hearts. We easily go and think about that person. Right? Ah, yeah, Jesus has got Bill in mind at work. Oh, I can't stand that guy. He's so arrogant. He thinks he's a believer. He drives me crazy. Yeah, I've got, I've got a Bill at my workplace too. Or that 
kid at school, right? Or that family member, mm-hmm. Remember COVID? Red, blue, masks, no masks, vax, no vax. Mm. Yep. Mm. There were a few judgy people during that time, I would say. Mm -hmm. No, this text is written to us. This text is written to me. This text is written to you. Are you this person? Am I this person? Don't let yourself off the hook. We need to do some serious examination. We all can fall into Pharisaism, right? We all can be tempted to compare ourselves with other people and say, at least I ain't that bad. Holy, wow, what a mess. What a hot mess. Good luck, right? Can't do it. Equal footing, level footing at the foot of the cross. All sinners. All sinners saved by grace. So don't become a God cop. Don't designate yourself as a cop for God sent on sin patrol, looking to get others into line and correct them. There is a place for correction for other Jesus followers. There is. Talk about that in just a second. But don't be so concerned about policing others. Just don't. Police the emphasis here and the emphasis and the Sermon on the Mount is policing yourself. Are you policing yourself? Are you walking in humble dependence on God? Are you growing in personal relationship with him? Are you striving for holiness and purity? Are you loving other people the way that you should? Are you not judging? Are you loving him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? If you're policing yourself, then and only then would it be right for you to help somebody else out. If you're not policing yourself, please don't help somebody else. You're not helping. But if you are, we need you. We need you. Why? The Christian life is not an individual self-help project. Walking with Jesus is a community endeavor. We need each other in each other's lives, humbly serving each other, humbly correcting each other in love, in humility, understanding that we ourselves are sinners saved by grace. We need humble people who we can trust to speak into our lives. So yes, please don't judge, but yes, please help me, right? Following Jesus is a community endeavor and something we only do well when we do it together. Steve, I don't know if you have uh, some interlude, some of that music, if you could put that on low. 
I'd like to call up the prayer team. Um, Jill's sick. Who else was on the prayer team this morning? Okay, okay, awesome. So Bob's going to join you. Meredith. I'd like to ask you to take a few moments to search your heart. Mm. Maybe close your eyes. Let's be honest with God for a few moments here. <clears throat> We've heard the word. We want to be doers of the word. We don't want to just sit and walk out and not be changed, right? So let's take a few moments. Examine yourself. Do you have a judgmental attitude toward anyone? Come on, get right. Take this seriously. Is there a coworker you, you have an arrogant heart toward, that you have been prideful toward, that you have a, a pharisaical spirit toward? Maybe a spouse or a child? Have you become a religious and judgmental Pharisee, forgetting that you too are a sinner like everyone else, saved by divine grace? I want, you to think th I want you to think this through. I don't want you to walk out a Pharisee. If you walked in a Pharisee, I want you to walk out changed. I want you to get this right. Jesus' words are pretty stern. Judge not that you might not be judged. Is there someone that you need to apologize to? Have you unduly criticized? Have you torn somebody down? And you need to go make it right. Spirit work, I pray. You need to do that today. You should not wait. Our Lord has spoken. Lord, search hearts. Lord, help us to examine ourselves. Do we have a log in our own eye? If we have a speck, inner eye we may need some help to get that out that's different from a beam specks are what happen as we journey through this life trying to follow Jesus and we sometimes stumble and fall don't we <clears throat> specks can be removed so the prayer team is up here this morning Anything you want prayer for. Maybe you, maybe you want to pray for somebody else who you know is a Pharisee and they need some intercession. Why don't you come up and pray for them? Or maybe you yourself know that you need, you need grace. Whatever you need this morning, come up and pray for that. As we sing our final song, 
Please get right with Jesus. Go ahead, Steve, let's pray. Let's play that song.